Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Mintcast, the official podcast of Mint Press News, a news service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account and goes beyond the headlines to bring you the real stories the corporate media doesn't want you to see. My name's Alan McLeod. And I'm Whitney Webb, and together we are going to not only discuss and analyze the big stories that the government and corporations want kept under wraps, but also revisit past events that have shaped our world but that the media has helped to hide for decades. Let's dive straight into some of Mint Press's top stories from the past week. Nationalist politicians push Sri Lankan Patriot Act on fearful populace following Easter attacks. On Easter Sunday, a series of coordinated bombings at hotels and churches across the island nation of Sri Lanka led to the deaths of at least 290 civilians, with hundreds more injured, Mint Press News reports. On Easter Sunday, Sri Lankan authorities pointed the finger at a little-known Islamic group called the NTJ. However, the next day, Islamic State claimed responsibility. Prime Minister uh, Ranil Wickremesinghe's government admitted a major intelligence lapse after it was revealed that Indian security forces warned them of an imminent attack. However, this information was not heeded nor widely shared. Nevertheless, Wickremesinghe's UNP party are attempting to exploit the suffering and trauma of the Easter attacks to push through a draconian anti-terror legislation. Since coming to power, Prime Minister Wickremesinghe has been trying to force through a new and unpopular counter-terrorism bill compared to the US Patriot Act that critics argue will criminalise democratic dissent, investigative journalism and increase persecution of Sri Lanka's many religious, linguistic and ethnic minorities. The bill defines terrorism as wrongfully or unlawfully uh, compelling the government of Sri Lanka or any other government or any international organization to do or abstain from doing any act, obstructing essential services, or causing serious damage to public or private property. Among other vague clauses that could be used to target dissent or demonstrations, from a journalistic uh, perspective, it claims that gathering confidential information in an unauthorized manner is a terroristic act, and it also allows police or military officials to make arrests without warrant or any suspic- or just on any suspicion of these actions. Critics of the government and the bill, including international human rights groups, have warned that it might transform the island nation into an ethno-police state where Sri Lanka's Muslim and Hindu minorities, constantly under persecution from the state and security forces, will be subject to increased scrutiny for terrorism by the Sinhalese Buddhist majority. Right. So I also think it's important here to point out that Wikri Masinge, um, he's also using the bombings for, for more than just pushing through this, this really Orwellian, uh, Orwellian bit of, of legislation. So for those that haven't followed Sri Lankan politics in recent years or, or maybe ever, uh, last, last year, I think it was around October, the end of October, uh, Wikri Masinge was, was nearly ousted, um, by the current president, the, the, the guy who's still president of Sri Lanka, uh, Matri Pali Sirisena. He tried to replace him with another leader who had previously been in charge of Sri Lanka, um, Mahinda Rajapaksa. Uh, but, but since that, that effort ultimately failed, right? And so since then, uh, the current prime minister and the president, 
have been on really bad terms, so much so that Wickery Masinke uh, hasn't been, in, even allegedly anyway, uh, hasn't been invited to any national security meetings since, like, December. So, of course, after the bombing, that makes most of the blame appear to fall on Siri Sena's shoulders, which obviously is going to be a political, uh, you know, a, a boon for, for Wickery Masinge. And let's also remember that, that this guy, uh, in his UNP party, uh, Wickery Masinge is the vice chair of the International Democrat Union. And this is a group of, um, you know, center right or conservative parties, um, that was founded in, in the early eighties by, you know, Margaret Thatcher and George H.W. Bush. And it was basically, you know, uh, formed to be this global alliance of political parties that are dedicated to, uh, center right policies and, you know, neoliberal uh, economic policy and, and privatization and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because they, they stay on their website, this uh, International Democrat Union, that basically all the member parties, they, they work together sort of as one to try and get the other ones elected and to win elections, which is really interesting here. If you consider that wow. other IDU members include... Um, India's B- uh, BJP party, which is, you know, N- uh, Narendra Modi. Uh, and then you have Israel's L- uh, Likud party. You have the U.S. Republican party, the U.K. Conservative party, or the Tories. And then you also have Sri Lanka's uh, UNP party led by Wickremesinghe. So it's an interesting coincidence also. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out, though it's, it's, it's speculative, you know. Um, but, you know, we have the U.S., the U.K., and some other IDU member states led by IDU uh, political parties uh, that are helping the investigation of this bombing. And so one of their main suspects so far has been uh, an oligarch allegedly close to Sirisena, which is kind of interesting. And you also have the United Arab Emirates involved in this. And, you know, there have been allegations that they have funded ISIS and, and, and Wahhabi terrorism. And ISIS is allegedly responsible for this for this bombing, right? So I think that's kind of... um you know, strain, more strange forces are at work here, especially considering that we have, you know, this sort of Patriot Act equivalent, um, you know, being pushed through by, by this guy, um, following, you know, this, this horrific attack and, and tragedy. So, um, it definitely seems like there's a lot, um, a lot of efforts to exploit that here, but of course, it's not just Wicker Masenge. You're also having, um, another guy, uh, who I, I sort of alluded to earlier, Mahinda Rahapaksa. He's also sort of been involved in trying to exploit this because he's been out of politics and his family, particularly his brother, is planning to run for president later this year. Um, and they're super nationalists. They're responsible for, um, you know, really crushing the, the Tamil Tiger insurgency. Um, yeah. in an extremely brutal way, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, and, and, you know, they're, they've really always sold themselves as these, these strong men politicians. And that may be attractive now following the, the wake of the bombings. And it, it already seems like, as, as is noted in this article, right, that they're moving to exploit that as well. So it's really a free for all of who can, you know, get the most political gain out of a tragedy. It's really sad to see. But, you know, this is common, not just in Sri Lanka, but, you know, in other countries too. I mean, just look at what happened after 9-11 in the U.S., right, as an example. Yeah, I suppose it's important to point out that Sri Lanka does have a long history of violence. It had a civil war with the Sri Lankan government uh, against the Tamil Tigers from the 1970s until very recently, uh, uh, actually. And there was all sorts of suicide bombers being used and terrible atrocities on both sides. And I think it's probably also important to just point out the religious demography of uh, of Sri Lanka. So, for instance, at the last sentence, uh, census in 2012, Buddhists made up about 70% of the population, uh, Hindus 12.6%, uh, 
Muslims just under 10% and Christians about 7%. And historically, those Buddhist numbers have been rising over time to become the really hegemon uh, hegemonic uh, force in Sri Lankan uh, life. Uh, Whitney, you actually wrote this article, and I wanted to quote something from you. Uh, Given that Sri Lankan police have often selectively targeted the, hin- the country's Hindu and Muslim majorities under the current PTA, this proposed expansion of police power has troubling implications. And coming just a couple of days ago that uh, the Sri Lankan government actually banned the veil, the burqa, or the hijab, or, well, just the burqa, actually, uh, this really seems to have been pretty prescient. Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, well, well, just to go back to the quote you said, you mentioned the PTA, that is the current um, anti-terrorist, counter-terrorism law on the books in Sri Lanka, and it's already really draconian, right? So this current law that they're trying to push through now, they claim that it would be more human rights friendly, but everyone that's looked at this thing has said the complete opposite. Um but as you brought up, right, um, so Sri Lankan police um, for decades have really selectively enforced this really intense counterterrorism law um, against Hindus because of the Tamil Tiger movement and also Muslims. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, um, I think it's pretty clear after the after the bombings, right, which have been blamed on a Muslim group, um, it, we're just going to see a, a continuation of that selective targeting, especially if this this new law is passed which I think is is really troubling. And, you know, that sort of repression only really leads to more drastic actions from minority groups. So it's really not, um, I wouldn't consider it an effective counterterrorism strategy um, either. And, you know, something I mentioned in the article here is that, you know, all these efforts to exploit things, you know, either exploiting Buddhist nationalism or, you know, using it as an excuse to, to come down hard on the Hindu or, or Muslim minority. I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the people that were the same, you know, victims of a lot of this violence have been disproportionately been, you know, these minority groups, and they're going to be the victims of, of all these power plays and these, um, you know, this legislation that they're trying to push through now, um, which is really, it, it's just sad. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's how it really seems to be that, you know, the people that are the same, uh, dying in greater numbers of sectarian violence, which are these religious minorities, are also the ones that are going to be hurt by this legislation and this sort of push to, towards nationalism and, and authoritarianism in Sri Lanka. Right. So moving on from one uh, destroyed uh, church in Sri Lanka to a very famous destroyed church in France, our next uh, headline is Notre Dame of Gaza. Our mosques and churches are also burning. This was in Mint Press News as well. France has been the centre of world attention for weeks now after the iconic Notre Dame de Paris uh, cathedral was engulfed in flames on April 15th. The world mourned for the loss of a deeply significant religious and architectural masterpiece. However, writing in Mint Press News, Dr. Ramsey Baroud reminds us that across the Middle East, uh, religious icons have been decimated, destroyed, and bombed, and sometimes with the help of Western powers too. For example, he notes the Israeli destruction of the Alomari and Al-Qassam mosques in Gaza in 2014, and ISIS's destruction of Palmyra in Syria, Buddha's in Afghanistan, and the Great Mosque of Al-Nuri in Mosul, Iraq too. As Notre Dame burns, he said, many French people of Middle Eastern background remembered the devastation of holy sites in their homelands. Many in France have been angered at the ease with which the elite raised over $1 billion in barely a week for the rebuilding of Notre Dame, while the country is supposedly too poor to afford basic services for its poor citizens, which has reignited the Gilets Jaunes movement, 
now approaching six months of continuous demonstrations against Emmanuel Macron's government. Among them, argues Ram, uh, Ramin Mazaheri in Mint Press News, should be Muslims, who are, who are the Gilets Jaunes' natural allies. Mazaheri claims that there is still strong support for the movement from the Muslim community, but that support is from afar because the French security services have a penchant for attacking Muslims and the failure of the Gilets Jaunes uh, to reach out to them to more effectively uh, bridge the gap to the Muslim community that represent over 5% of France's population. Yeah, I think Mazahiri there made a really good point. Um, but let's remember, too, how weaponized Islamophobia has been in the West and in Europe, especially. Uh, you know, it's not just exclusive to France. But, you know, so while I'm, I'm sure that there is a good portion of Yelves who would, you know, be in support of seeking out such an alliance, um, there, it's also worth noting that there were probably a substantial portion as well that would also um, oppose it just because of this sort of conditioned distrust of Muslims in general um, mm, that's yeah. sort of been promoted by the media. Um, to a big extent, and and that will I think I think this will actually be a really key challenge for the yellow vest movement going forward because you know Islamophobia has been really promoted after you know like in the post nine eleven era era, but um, it also has a really long history in France too, right? So it's been used by by the state of France to get the French people to support you know um, barbaric military campaigns of Muslim majority nations, um, especially the Algerian War, which was in like the fifties and sixties. Sure. And during yeah. that time, right, France's tactics, they were so savage, they later were taught to and, and inspired, you know, Latin American dictatorships in Operation Condor, including the, you know, the, the method of killing people via the so-called death flights, all of that came from France, right? And so this, this, um, you know, the French government at that time, you know, profited, benefited from uh, Islamophobia because, you know, that, that gives them that justification to, to treat Muslims in, in other countries that way through military action. And, and of course, um, it's used today, too, to justify France's involvement in the Middle East right now in places like Syria and, and Yemen. So um, I think if the Yellow Vest can reach, you know, reach out to France's Muslim population and if both both groups can effectively recognize that the oligarchy of France that, you know, Macron, whose interests Macron uh, represents, that, that that is their common enemy, a common enemy, and that's what is, you know, oppressing both of these groups, I think we can see the solidarity movement really evolve into something even more powerful. Because, you know, the sort of Islamophobia thing has always been um, a divide and conquer strategy. If the, if the Yellow Vest movement of the people in France in general, whether they're Muslim or Christian or whatever, can sort of bridge that gap, I mean, that that is something that is going to make the oligarchy very afraid and I haven't really seen it happen yet and I think Mazahiri's point is um, you know would be worth considering for Yellow Vest uh, protesters as sort of a next move type of thing in my opinion yeah for sure I mean I suppose because they're so decentralized there's no leading figures that can uh, reach out formally to these groups mm. but I mean I think it's pretty it's pretty understandable why Muslims wouldn't want to put themselves on the front line in France because uh, well, Muslims make up around 70% of France's prison population already, despite being under 10% of the population at large. And also the violence of the French police towards the gilets jaunes, cracking heads, people losing eyes, limbs, etc. has been really quite remarkable. So I can certainly see why people who are Muslim or come from an Arabian background may not want to get involved. Yeah, well, even if that's true, I feel like they could come out, you know, on social media or, or in other means and, and offer vocal support in another way, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean they have to be on the front lines, you know. I think a lot of the people that have already been wounded by 
um, you know, extreme police violence in the Yellow Vest movement, you know, people that have lost eyes and limbs and things like that. I don't really think they're on the front lines anymore, but they still participate in an active way, right? So I think it's possible to participate, um, even if they don't want to be on, you know, on the front line. But, you know, um, at some point, you know, when you're trying to confront, you know, a, a government that you want to, um, you want to see real change, I mean, sometimes you have to, um, you know, let uh, put, <laughs> kind of hard to, I'm looking for words here. Um, you kind of have to, you know, forget about your fear, I guess, because, you know, it's about something that's, that's bigger than, than just one person. And that's what, you know, these people that have already suffered so extensively in France uh, as a part of these protests have, have demonstrated. Yeah, I mean, there has been talk in the French media that, uh, that the Gilets Jaunes protests do appear to have quite a white hue to them. And I think that's reasonably, uh, accurate. But, uh, of course, we have to remember that it really exploded, uh, as a protest against, uh, rising petrol or diesel costs, which affect the slightly more rural or suburban French people much more than urban, uh, people. And that's really where the majority of immigrants and Muslim immigrants in particular do live. They live in the larger cities in the banlieue of Paris or in Marseille, for instance. Whereas this movement is much more of a sort of France profonde, uh, uh, movement where it's uh, people from lower middle class or upper working class backgrounds maybe living slightly precariously who would be seriously negatively affected because they live in small towns and need their vehicles to move from town to town for their jobs or just to see their friends or their family or whatever. So I can see why uh, this would particularly uh, appeal to slightly more whiter France. Right. But at the same time, I think, you know, since this movement's been going on for six months, I mean, that there, there is a point where it sort of needs to evolve into something, um, you know, beyond that. I mean, because, you know, if you have uh, a multi-ethnic makeup like you do in France at some point, you know, the, the, the mainstream media in France and especially Macron allies, you know, have been looking for any reason to, de de uh, to, to take legitimacy away from that movement, right? So if they can sort of characterize yeah. it as all white, uh, or, you know, even start making claims of, like, anti-Semitism and white nationalism in the movement, which we've already seen from these people, right? If they can reach a across to other ethnic groups that are also oppressed, you know, by the same system, I think we can see a real change here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at some point you really have to, if you are serious about it and you're in that movement, you do have to start critically self-reflecting and thinking about ways in which you can expand your base but just looking at the coverage, if this was happening in Iran or Venezuela, it would be front page news daily across the world. I mean, no doubt John McCain would be flying into Marseille or Paris to support the Gilets Jaunes <laughs> against the dictatorship of Macron like he did in Ukraine. You know, it would be something completely different. It would be a media spectacle. And, and you know, uh, and you're even having censorship issues, you know, with, with the yellow vest. I mean, it's not getting the coverage it deserves. Um, in my opinion, even though it's been going on for six months, if this were happening in any enemy state of the U.S., as you mentioned, I mean, it would be it would be everywhere and there would be calls to help the Democratic uprising and all this. But it's not there. And that I, and that I think tells you a lot. So anyway, talking about censorship, um, another one of our top stories this week has to do with Facebook um, and Twitter and social media in general. So I'll get into that now. So last Monday, uh, Facebook made what is arguably its most Orwellian hire ever by naming Jennifer Newstead as its new general counsel. Newstead, who was a key player in the George W. Bush administration and also a co-author of the controversial Patriot Act, 
will now oversee Facebook's response to the national security letters, which uh, national security letters, for those that don't know, are subpoenas, uh, subpoenas that the U.S. government gives to private tech companies to obtain private user data and which were actually legislated into existence by the very Patriot Act that Newstead helped to write. So it's hard to imagine how Newstead will, res- it's, it's not hard to imagine how Newstead will respond to those requests, which have actually been drastically increasing in number in recent years, um, numbering in the tens of thousands annually. So Newstead is notably uh, yet another former uh, Bush official that's now in a top position at Facebook, and her hire also seems to be a means of currying favor and access to the Trump administration, which itself is also full of former Bush officials. So at the same time Newstead was hired, Facebook also hired um, a top veteran of Microsoft and Google, both of whom are U.S. government contractors as the new vice president of global communications. That guy's name is John Pinnett. Um, So it is hard to see how these recent hires will ease privacy concerns in the wake of Facebook's now numerous data harvesting scandals, which have shown the company's willingness to play play fast and loose with user data in exchange for money and influence. Facebook apparently tried to calm concerns by hiring a former Electronic Frontier Foundation activist as the head of privacy policy a day after Newstead and Pennant were hired. But with Newstead in charge of national security letter responses at Facebook, the hire of this EFF guy seems a little more than window dressing at this point. Yeah, sure. I mean, it seems like we live in an upside down world. I mean, you said it was perhaps <laughs> the most Orwellian. We live in an Orwellian uh, hire by uh, Facebook, but I, I mean, I'm not even sure I'd agree because, of course, just recently we had Facebook employing the Weekly Standard as part of its fact-checking team that was going to decide what oh, was true. I had forgotten that. And of course, <laughs> wow. the Weekly Standard was like the key magazine in cementing the link between uh, Saddam Hussein and 9/11 in the right. in the view of it's Americans. Bill Crystal and Robert Kagan. The That's uh, right. granddaddy neocons <laughs> that brought us and the Iraq it, War, right? And they I were both on uh, Project for a New American Century, so that, that should tell you a lot. Sure, I think it's just recently closed its doors for the final time, so, um, you know, well, good riddance to that, frankly. Well, they're back, but, they have the bulwark, or, or bulwark, or however you say it, is the new... Oh, character. I see. It's yes. Risen from, the, risen from the grave, okay. We just can't kill it. No, you know, we no, need that hard, silver bullet. Hard we need to, to get rid of those pesky neocons. They're everywhere. We need to find a cheating stake quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, Facebook uh, has also worked, for instance, with the Israeli government uh, to decide which uh, Palestinian voices to censor and which ones to leave on on the platform. And Glenn Greenwald uh, did a great report on that in the Intercept, which showed that ninety five percent of the Israeli government requests were granted by Facebook. And there's also been a whole ton of uh, censorship of alternative vices, alternative media on the platform as well. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that um, censorship um, was done in coordinate of, of alternative media in the in the West and the U.S. and the U.K. and whatnot. That's been done in coordination with the Atlantic Council. Um, for those that don't know, the Atlantic Council is basically the lobby organization of NATO. Um, it's funded by NATO. It's funded by the U.S. government. It's funded by the U.K. government. It's also funded by top weapon manufacturers. So that's basically who Facebook is working with at this point. Um, it's also worth pointing out that Facebook also uh, regularly shares data, uh, going back to these data harvesting scandals, 
right? They regularly share uh, private user data with companies like Microsoft and Amazon. And uh, both Amazon and Microsoft are also U.S. military contractors. Uh, Amazon also provides, uh, well, is you know, cloud servers and web services to the CIA and every uh, U.S. intelligence agency, uh, as well as the National Security Agency. Funny, uh, because that's the agency largely responsible for the warrantless surveillance programs uh, that followed the Patriot Act. Going back to Newstead's hire, so that's, an, uh, you know, just another example of how government and social media, the gap between them is closing pretty quickly. Um, another thing that I wanted to bring up in connection with this article um, is that Trump recently had a closed-door meeting with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey uh, that included... Right, and that, is that where he started to complain about where why his Twitter followers were reducing? Yeah, power? yeah, um, and he didn't understand that those were bots, apparently, at first, but anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he was apparently most concerned about that, um, but what I found interesting is that in the public statement given about this meeting, um, it says what, what Twitter uh, came out and, and told NBC News that what had been discussed was quote, Twitter's commitment to protecting the health of the public conversation ahead of the 2020 elections. Um, So to me, you know, that really, um, you know, beyond this thing about, you know, Trump being worried about his personal Twitter followers and all this stuff, I think that's the bigger news here. Um, Because remember that after the last election, all those accusations about Russian meddling and then making like six memes uh, and all this stuff to like, you know, that made Trump win allegedly and all this. You oh know, yeah. The Buff Bernie stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. All these, all these, all this stuff has been used to really push through really intense uh, censorship on social media platforms and on Google, big algorithm changes that have really hit independent media hard. Um, so the fact that, you know, Jack Dorsey has this closed door meeting with Trump and he's talking about protecting the quote, health of the public conversation and all of this, this to me, in combination with Facebook's Patriot Act author hire, I mean, this really tells me that, you know, uh, some of these purges are going to be coming back and they're going to be coming back soon. Purges like the one that happened last October where they took off uh, pages like the Anti-Media, the Free Thought Project, Police the Police, all of these pages. Um, I think that was just the first one and they'll be coming for for the rest of us or at least several of us um, not long from now because a lot of those pages were anti-war, anti-empire, critical of Trump's foreign policy. I think going forward, especially if the Trump administration prior to the election tries to be more aggressive in terms of foreign policy, um, you know, I think I think we could definitely see some of those purges take place. And let's remember, too, that at the time that purge happened last October, there was a big uh, neocon guy, uh, Jamie Fly, um, who said that that purge was, quote, just the beginning. And actually, uh, his group, Jamie Fly's group, the, um, the well, he's a senior fellow at, at this place called the German Marshall Fund. Uh, actually, in February, several months after he, he had said this in October, in February, they were actually involved in censoring uh, In the Now uh, from Facebook, though In the Now uh, fought fought that censorship and was successful. But that sort of shows you that they're... There are efforts to, to keep censorship going, and the fact that Dorsey is meeting behind closed doors to protect, protect you know, the American people from, you know, their own discourse, um, I mean, I think that that's a pretty clear indication of where this is going. Yeah, I mean, just keeping it on the censorship, you wrote this week as well about Press TV being censored by Google News, didn't you? Yeah, I didn't actually write about the story, Alex Rubenstein did, so... Um, 
But it, it is another very important example of Silicon Valley censorship that happened very recently. So last week, Google, along with its subsidiaries like YouTube and Google News, they completely the platform Press TV, which is the English language Iranian government funded news outlet, as well as its Spanish language equivalent Hispan TV. Um, Press TV was told um, in a statement from Google that, quote, the Google account for Press TV was disabled and can't be restored because it was used in a way that violates Google's policies. But no further explanation was given, and Press TV was not informed of what specific uh, policies they had violated. Um, It's also worth reminding um, our listeners that earlier this year, an American citizen who was also a journalist for Press TV, Marzai Hashimi, uh, she was jailed for 10 days, even though she wasn't charged with a crime, presumably because of her connection to Press TV. The government later said that she had been detained because she was wanted as a, quote, material witness in a grand jury investigation. Uh, no info on that investigation, by the way, has come forward, at least to the... Uh, at least to my knowledge. Um, and it's worth noting that, you know, Google's recent censorship and what happened to Hashimi and all of this, this has all been going on while the U.S. is actively attempting to overthrow Iran's government and after the U.S. unilaterally imposed sanctions on Iran after withdrawing from the Iran deal, right? So let's go back to Google for a second. So Google, which is, as I mentioned, has just censored Press TV, is notably a U.S. military contractor and is developing artificial intelligence systems for the military. Also, Google's longtime chief executive, Eric Schmidt, is uh, has since 2016 been on the Pentagon's, quote, innovation board alongside Amazon's Jeff Bezos. So I don't really think it's far-fetched to argue that Google would aid U.S. foreign policy objectives, in this case with Iran, uh, given that the connection... Um uh, given that connection with, of them as a U.S. military contractor, and also the fact that we know that Google, to some extent, was involved in aiding past U.S.-backed regime change efforts, like during the Arab Spring. Um, and it's also worth pointing out, uh, as we were talking about Facebook earlier, that um, Iranian government officials had their accounts uh, taken down on Instagram. Instagram, of course, is owned by Facebook, and as we mentioned, Facebook is working with the Atlantic Council and groups like that. So um, it's becoming, you know... These examples really show that it's becoming really hard. It's becoming much harder to distinguish, you know, where these big tech companies begin and where the government ends. They're basically, you know, colluding to a point where, I mean, they're basically, you know, it's becoming state run social media. I think at this point, it's not, I feel like it, you know, the days where it openly becomes that are unfortunately not that, not that far in the future based on what's going now, uh, going on now. Yeah, sure. I mean, that sounds like Yasha Levine's argument in his book, uh, Surveillance Valley, the, the secret military history of the internet goes into that, about how even from the very beginning, the internet was really, you know, developed with the help of the US state. And it's always been like that, even if it has had this very right. sort of libertarian sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, f- f- market of place of free ideas, ideology behind it. But it is really remarkable how they're going after such pitifully small uh, news outlets like Press TV. I mean, that reaches nobody, frankly. And the fact that they're going after it really shows a sort of uh, totalitarian mindset behind it, frankly. I mean, just going back to the Atlantic Council, I'd urge people listening to just go to their About Us section, just have a look who's on the board uh, of uh, members at the Atlantic Council, their directors. I mean, it's people like Henry Kissinger, neocon hawks from the Bush administration like Condoleezza Rice or uh, Baker or Colin Powell. There's retired generals like Wesley Clark and David Petraeus. 
I mean, it's just a host of a who's who of who was at the highest levels of the yeah. government. And, and their, so Frank- their current president is a Goldman Sachs guy, by the way. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, so frankly, is when an organization like that is deciding what you and what also, remember, because Facebook and Google are huge international companies, so it's not just Americans, but they're deciding what the world sees on in their news feeds. That's really tantamount to state censorship. Totally. And, and going back to what you were mentioning about Yasha Levine and, 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 you know, the beginning of the Internet. Um, so, yes, the U.S. government had involvement from the very beginning in the creation of the Internet itself. But also, since we're talking about Google, it's worth pointing out that Google was actually funded initially uh, by NQTEL, which is the CIA's venture capital branch. Um, so uh, in te- you could also argue in the case of Google that U.S. intelligence has also been involved from the very beginning. And this all, uh, all of the stuff going on now with Google may also explain why they decided to get rid of their longtime motto, don't be evil. <laughs> um, that's pretty <laughs> telling that they decided to axe that uh, rather quietly. Yeah, so they just crossed off the don't, and now they're just, you know, the mask is off, be evil, <laughs> that is it, okay. Yeah, well, I think they got rid of it all together, not just one word, but that would have been the most <laughs> honest thing to do, um, <laughs> what, what you suggested. This has actually been happening quite a lot, so it's uh, basically any enemy of the U.S. government seems to be under attack, so this has happened to, like, uh, pro-Venezuelan government uh, Twitter accounts have been banned, hundreds right. of them. And, and going back to Iran, Iranian activists as well, and like Iranian college students that didn't agree with the U.S. regime chain efforts have been have been censored. Even recently we've seen in Ecuador, one of Ecuador's largest radio stations uh, was, was censored. Um, it was totally taken off of Twitter, which, um, you know, given all the stuff that's been going on with Julian Assange and, and Ecuador's government, I think is also telling as well. Um, but speaking of, of you know, uh, Venezuelans being taken offline, that, that brings us to our next story of current events going on in Venezuela, um, because as of this morning, there is now another coup, temp, uh, coup attempt underway there. Yeah, another coup attempt away in, in Venezuela. Self-declared Venezuelan interim president Juan Guaido began another attempt to wrest power away from the government of Nicolas Maduro on April 30th, while claiming to have taken and be at the La Carlota airbase in Caracas, Guaido called for a military uprising, what he called Operation Freedom. He was flanked by the leader of the right-wing Popular Will Party, Leopoldo Lopez, who had escaped his house arrest earlier that day. He had been confined to his mansion in East Caracas after being convicted of arson and incitement to violence for his past, uh, leading another coup attempt in 2014. (laughs) Um, From being virtually unknown, even inside Venezuela, Guaido shot to international prominence in January after declaring himself president of Venezuela and attempting a coup. After promising Vice President Mike Pence that he had the support of around half the military, the United States backed the coup attempt. However, after launching his audacious bid, he was only able to recruit between 0 and 0.1% of the armed forces to his cause. Not only, uh, nor was he able to mobilize beyond his hardcore base of supporters. Nevertheless, around 50 countries, mostly in Europe and the Americas, support Juan Guaido's legitimacy. The president of the European Parliament called the April 30th move a historic day for the return of democracy and freedom to Venezuela. However, around 150 countries continue to reject Guaido. This current move has the clear backing of the United States. Senator Marco Rubio stated, After years of suffering, freedom is waiting for the people of Venezuela. Now is the moment to take to the streets. Do not allow this moment to slip away. 
In contrast, Bolivian President Evo Morales declared, we strongly condemn the coup attempt in Venezuela by a right-wing government sub, uh, submissive to the foreign uh, interests of the United States. Defense Minister Vladimir Padrino has described the military as being in a state of total normalcy throughout the country. Indeed, Venezuelan uh, state TV rushed to the La Carlota military base and found that it had not been taken by the opposition and that neither Lopez nor Guaido were there, which questions how much support the coup attempt has within both the military and the general public. You know, I think what we're seeing here is, is sort of what's been happening, you know, ever since Guaido de declared himself president. And it's really staging of a, of a spectacle for international media, not necessarily the Venezuelan people, right? Mm. So as you mentioned yeah. there, we're seeing this about, oh, well, they weren't really at the military base. They said they were. And, you know, all this uh, new talk of defections from the military, we haven't really seen evidence of that either. But, they, you know, of course, Guaido and Lopez are claiming that. So I think what we're seeing is sort of, um, you know, um, a, a cause... Uh, for international media attention to be brought to Venezuela and potentially, if it, you know, if this move is used by, you know, um, you know, the Maduro-led government to maybe arrest Lopez or Guaido or something like that, that the U.S. could sort of uh, respond with some sort of, um, you know, either a potentially a military response. We had uh, Mike Pompeo sort of hint that the U.S. military um, is watching developments going on right now with Amnesty yeah, sure. Libertad, you know, I've got his tweet closely. here, actually. Right. Why don't you read well, it? Well, Pedro said, Today, Interim President Juan Guaido announced the start of Operation, Operation Libertad. The U.S. government fully supports the Venezuelan people in their quest for freedom and democracy. Right. So, I mean, I think this is really like an international, uh, it, this is being made to the international community, not necessarily um, to people in Venezuela. We're also seeing all these fake reports online of uh, the Venezuelan government taking down social media, even though Twitter is full of people from Venezuela. I had some guy tell me on Twitter today, for example, hey, I'm in Caracas and I uh, can't use the internet. They've blocked internet access. Um, right? But he's, he says he's tweeting from Venezuela and then some person finds out uh, that he actually was tweeting from Wellington, New Zealand. Uh, and the guy responds um, and says, what? It's a crime to go on vacation or something like that, right? So, um you know, it's just uh, a bunch of disinformation going out right now. Um, you know, this is really common. And, um, you know, and it, this whole thing of them shutting down social media is being promoted by people like Edward Snowden, right? Trying to mm. make, you know, the um, the Venezuelan government, like, look bad. You're even having, there's even um, a lawyer for WikiLeaks also said, condemned, um, you know, uh, the, the Maduro-led government saying he was a criminal and all this stuff and, and needs to be uh, removed from power. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, strange stuff going on here right now, uh, to say the least. Um, but let's go back to Leopoldo Lopez for a moment. So a lot of people in recent months may have heard a lot about Juan Guaido, but uh, Leopoldo Lopez is really the power behind Juan Guaido. Uh, Juan, Juan Guaido is part of this party called the Popular Will Party, but the head of that party is Lopez. And Lopez has always pretty much, you know, for the, I would say, uh, at least the past five years, arguably longer, he's really been sort of this poster boy that's been sort of pushed in, in the face of international media as like the face of the Venezuelan opposition, at least until Guaido took over and declared himself president, right? But Lopez um, is believed to have uh, connections to the CIA that go back to his time studying in the U.S. at Kenyon University. 
Um, he was a frequent visitor to the International Republican Institute um, in Washington, D.C., uh, prior to uh, the attempted and failed coup in 2002. Uh, he also regularly met with people from the George W. Bush administration. Um, his the, the, the Popular Will Party has been one of those parties that's been really heavily funded by the U.S. government. Lopez himself was directly involved in the 2002 coup attempt, um, which is part of why he isn't exactly popular with the majority of Venezuelans because that coup attempt is remembered very poorly. Um, but sure. it's also interesting to point out that um, even, you know, from, from leaked uh, U.S. diplomatic cables, we know that Lopez is actually, um, I'll quote from that cable, Lopez is a, quote, divisive figure within the opposition, often described as arrogant, vindictive, and power-hungry. <laughs> but party officials also concede his enduring popularity, charisma, and talent as an organ. So I think, you know, that cable can sort of explain why Guaido was chosen instead of Lopez, because he's assumably not as divisive, but also in line with the same policies Lopez supports uh, uh, by being a part of his political party. And there's also, you know, uh, several occasions where we see uh, in the past where we've seen Lopez giving speeches, right, and Juan Guaido is right there behind him or they're working together. Um, So they're, you know, they're clear political allies. But, you know, since he's that charismatic you know, heavily promoted figure, um, and, but also divisive. I think that explains why, you know, we've sort of seen Guaido to being the public face of this, but we're seeing Lopez being intimately involved as well, um, which is part of why I think, sure. you know, a big part of this is, oh, he was taken, he was uh, escaped his house arrest with help of the military, was how this uh, narrative was, was promoted earlier this morning, right? Um, we're recording on Wednesday, by the way, or Tuesday. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Lopez is an interesting one, and uh, I actually had a, an entire chapter on Lopez and his coup attempt in my book, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting. But he's a really interesting character, because he, both him and uh, pretty much all the opposition leaders, in a way, uh, do come from this uh, aristocratic background in Venezuela. They're the descendants of Simon Bolivar and the creators of the of the Republic, for instance. But um, Guaido is presented, anyway, as being a little bit different. Across the media, he is presented as this humble working-class guy who came from really uh, small origins. And even I believed it, because I didn't think they would uh, misrepresent something so uh, ridiculous. But then I was reading in Bloomberg, it said, you know, his dad was a humble international 747 airline pilot. And I thought, what in a third world country? That's not humble beginnings. And apparently he oh, went to... Wait, one you're of- talking about Guaido, not Lopez, right? Yeah, Juan Guaido, yeah. that's okay. right, yeah. Yeah, and he, it, it was just uh, kind of ridiculous how these uh, leaders are being built up. I mean, I remember Newsweek talking about Leopoldo Lopez as a... Uh, Twinkling high cheekbones and uh, chocolate-colored eyes that uh, they they talked about. Wow, before. so dreamy. Yeah, I mean, talking about Bloomberg, uh, a Bloomberg yeah. journalist um, tweeted something very interesting uh, on the thirtieth. He said that uh, Leopoldo Lopez uh, broke out of uh, his house arrest, and he said that uh, any future government would have to have the direct involvement of the United States directly governing the country. In, uh, in, in coordination with him and his party, which is just an astonishing thing to say the minute you... It's insane, but very telling. I mean, I guess this is why this is called, they're calling this whole thing, uh, Guaido's calling this whole thing Operation Freedom, right? <laughs> it does sound like something George W. Bush would have, you know, labeled it, it as, yeah. 
Yeah, it's basically like, um, you know, oh, we're going to end the suffering of the Venezuelan people by making Venezuela a literal colony of the United States. That that sounds yeah. um, very freedom promoting. <laughs> um, well, that's why, that's why I think what you said about um, this being primarily the for the an international audience was probably quite very apt. I mean, we'll see what happens, but that does seem to be the general feeling in Caracas. Well, so far, so right now, um, you know, it's about noon Eastern time on, on Tuesday when we're recording this. So far, I mean, the protests that they've shown live feeds of, even from places like Reuters, um, are really small. Um, there isn't a lot of stuff going on. People have, have shown footage of, you know, the, the main plaza close to the presidential palace. I mean, there's not any big uh, demonstrations there. So I think this is just going to be just another... Uh, failed attempt at in, inciting some sort of protest by Guaido at the U.S.'s behest. Um, the the real danger, of course, is always going to be uh, the U.S. attempting to do some sort of military intervention after some sort of provocation of, uh, of some point, or them trying to get Colombian paramilitaries involved in some sort of provocations. Um, in my opinion, and I've actually said this before, and actually I've said it on, on Venezuelan radio, that I think at some point, if this fails enough times... Um, this sort of stunt by Guaido to sort of, you know, get people on the streets and they don't come on the streets because no one cares about him and no one likes him. <laughs> uh, you know, it, as this continues to fail, I think we, we could very well see something that, that happened, um, you know, more or less reminiscent of what happened in Ukraine in 2014. We have sort of like these snipers, um, you know, or, or like the, the, these, uh, covert acts of violence that are blamed on, on Maduro or, or things like that to sort of, you know, generate outrage, not necessarily in Venezuela, but at an international level and, and sort of build this foundation for military intervention from the U.S. or from some other, um, some other country. Actually, you know, um, for, since, since most of the, most of this has gone on since the end of, uh, of January, um, most of the countries in Latin America have, have totally ruled out any support for military intervention. And that included Brazil, which of course is now led by uh, Jair uh, Bolsonaro. But actually not that long ago, Bolsonaro, after he visited the CIA headquarters and visited the White House, uh, changed his tune and said at some point there will need to be military intervention in Venezuela. And basically his son, who accompanied him on those trips, um, hinted, at least in, he, he spoke to Chilean uh, media La Tercera, uh, he told uh, that outlet that, you know, intervention, all options were on the table from Brazil's perspective. So um, wow. th- those are the things to, to be conscious of here. I mean, Juan Guaido was trying to build some sort of media narrative to support his uh, uh, presidency that even under its own legal basis no longer exists. <laughs> Right. So because um, remember, he, so he was supposed to be the president, an interim president serving for a certain amount of days. Uh, of course, that time has long since expired. So, um, you know, this this um, parallel government doesn't control anything except for a handful of embassies. And it's really on its last leg. So I think, um, you know, uh, we're just going to see more desperate moves uh, in covert action, potentially some sort of like military provocation uh, coming up in the future, because I don't really see the U.S. backing down after investing so much in Guaido. Mm, yeah. Watch this space, everyone. Anyway, let's move on to uh, the flashback files. In this segment, we're going to take something that is perhaps, you know, not very well known, but uh, really should be from uh, history. And we're going to tell you a little bit about it. And today it's the Korean War.
There's a reason the Korean War, which officially lasted three years between 1950 and 1953 and claimed the lives of perhaps three million soldiers, is called the Forgotten War. It receives barely any attention in comparison to World War II and the Vietnam, <coughs> the Vietnam invasion, but the profound effects of the conflict continue on to this day with the peninsula split between the US-backed, US-occupied South and the insular north, often described by the US as a hermit kingdom, ruled by the, King, uh, the Kim dynasty. Furthermore, the area remains on a permanent high alert, and the delicate ceasefire continues, and all uh, Koreans live under the threat of instant annihilation. President Donald Trump has warned the north to prepare for fire and fury, the likes of which the world has never seen, while those living in the South's capital, Seoul, live in the crosshairs of a massive arsenal of artillery pointed at them from the north, barely an hour's drive away. Both countries remain militarised to an absurd degree, with the military playing an, in, in, <coughs> an inordinate role in the public and political life. After overthrowing Japanese occupation, there was an overwhelming support among the people for unification. However, the great powers intervened to prevent this, sparking an intensely bloody war of annihilation. It's called the Forgotten War in the West, but Koreans still remember the shocking brutality and carnage wrought by the conflict, which was greatly increased by the involvement of foreign powers, including the Soviet Union, China, Great Britain, and the US. The US aerial bombing of, uh, of the North was like nothing seen in history. Pyongyang, the capital of the North, was completely obliterated, with barely a handful of buildings surviving the bombing and fires. According to Pref uh, Professor Bruce Cummings of Chicago University, and the author of The Korean War, A History, every city in North Korea was almost totally leveled by US bombing. Cummings called the incendiary bombing campaign as one of the worst episodes of unrestrained violence in human history. Towards the end of the war, the US Air Force's own literature describes in detail how it had run out of buildings to target, so it began bombing dams, something banned at Nuremberg as a war crime. The literature describes with glee the sight of the towns and the people being swept away in the floods and the devastation of the rice crop. The bombings led to the extermination of around 20% of the Korean race, according to US General Curtis LeMay, largely through incineration or starvation, and turned the region into the world's poorest and most devastated area. Uh, speaking about overlooked uh, parts of, of the Korean War, um, another um, aspect of this war, in addition to the brutal bombing campaign, was also the U.S.'s uh, alleged use of biological weapons against civilian populations in Korea and also on uh, Chinese towns that were bordering Korea. Um, an international scientific commission was actually convened in 1952 and they went and examined uh, uh, evidence, they collected evidence, they visited sites, they performed field tests, they took testimony from witnesses, including four American pilots, and they found overwhelming evidence that the U.S. government had dropped canisters containing insects like fleas and rodents contaminated with bubonic plague, hemorrhagic fever, which is caused by hantavirus, and other highly wow. contagious diseases on rural villages in Korea and on the Korea-China border, as I, as I mentioned. So from that, an estimated 3,000 American and Korean soldiers and Korean civilians were infected with hantavirus alone. Um, of course, the U.S. government denied its involvement, and everyone who said... Uh, 
otherwise, including members of that commission I mentioned and, and respected journalists, uh, were labeled communist propagandists, and some were even taken to court by the U.S. government just for reporting on these bioweapons claims. One American journalist, whose name was John Powell, he was charged with sedition by the Eisenhower presidency for reporting on the bioweapon allegations. So this may also explain why the Korean War has become known as the Forgotten War, because the government you know, pressured people to be quiet, and they made sure the public forgot by going after journalists who were trying to expose these war crimes. Yeah, I mean, it's just remarkable about uh, the level of destruction that happened in Korea. I mean, both North and South were completely decimated. Although it's quite interesting to <clears throat> to learn that um, way up until the 1960s, it was actually the North that was much more developed than the South. And in fact, U.S. planners were were worried that uh, the South could never catch up to the industrial development of the North. And yet, of course, within just a few decades, they had the South had this incredible economic miracle, which occurred precisely because the dictatorship in the South ignored all the rules of free trade and uh, started uh, pursuing its own infant industries, building up a massive steel industry, a massive shipbuilding industry under uh, General Chun, according to the Cambridge economist Hajin Chang. Yeah, well, it's worth pointing out, too, remember that, you know, the way this war was sold to the American public, it was about stopping the communists and spreading democracy and all this stuff. So, uh, as you just pointed out, what happened after the Korean War, well, in South Korea, which was, you know, the U.S.-backed, U.S. military-occupied part of the Korea, instead of installing democracy there, there was a U.S.-backed military dictatorship that crushed dissent and ruled with an iron fist, right? So here we go back again to this whole thing, this whole narrative about spreading democracy and all that stuff. I mean, let's let's remember all these, you know, governments that have been supported by the U.S. that were, you know, military dictatorships, especially during this time and, and after World War II. Um, honestly, it, it seems more convincing that they support uh, dictatorships over... Um, over actual democratic states, um, which, you know, doesn't really, um, you know, we had, it came out like a, a year or two ago that the U.S. actually funds 70% uh, with military aid, 70% of the world's dictatorships. So I think, you know, the Korean case is just yet another example of, of how hollow that narrative is. And I really hope at some point most Americans stop believing it. Yeah, I mean, and both those countries are still just absurdly militaristic. I mean, there's no escape from national service for South Korea, even if you're an actor or celebrity or, you know, the famous uh, Spurs football player, Hyun Song Min, uh, was <clears throat> was uh, on the books to have to go back to do his national service in, in the South, uh, cutting short his uh, Spurs career. Um, but, of course, in the North, it's even worse. There's, there's a 10-year national service between, uh, <clears throat> I think it's, what, 28 and 38 or something like that, or, you know, 20 and 30. Well, but... Uh, but the point is, yeah, you have to be in the national, uh, in some branch of the military for 10 years, and that creates a huge garrison state where, you know, uh, the North has actually built in an entire world underground, huge military bases, even air uh, airfields that are underground. So you have the, the incredible sight of uh, military planes taking off from the sides of mountains and just bursting out, and also... Uh, and also landing into the sides of mountains as well. And this is all to try to prevent against some sort of massive uh, aerial bombardment. 
Well, you know, going back to what, what we were talking about, um, about how the Korean War and how so many civilians in, in Korea, they either died from being incinerated or they died from starvation. What we have actually going on today, um, and actually this was reported on by Mempress last Monday, um, is that there was a, a leaked diplomatic me- memo that showed that the uh, the North Korean government is is at lobbying its allies for assistance because they are dealing with an urgent food shortage crisis that could um, result in in mass starvation um, if something isn't done. And of course, this is the result of U.S. sanctions against against North Korea. And even though the Trump administration is ostensibly dedicated to resolving this conflict peacefully, they refuse to uh, budge on any of the many sanctions imposed on North Korea. And so we're having, you know, it's basically we are, uh, the U.S. is currently waging a form of warfare, economic warfare, uh, warfare targeting civilians, right, um, against North Korea right now. So, I mean, even though they're trying to, you know, end the Korean War, supposedly, you know, they're, they're sort of repeating some of its tactics in a, in a, you know, a less overt way, I guess you could argue, um, which is really troubling. And also, let's also remember too that we have, um, Certain people in the Trump administration, uh, John Bolton mainly, who um, have made it very clear even before they were hired and as soon as they were hired that, you know, they were fully intent on sabotaging these talks. And I mean, John Bolton has made that uh, crystal clear, I would argue, at this point. And he's really stuffed the National Security Council with, um, you know, Korea hawks, including people from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies that that want North Korea bombed. Obviously, uh, John Bolton really loves to arguing for the preemptive bombing of countries like North Korea or Iran. So, um, and I'm sure, you know, with someone like John Bolton in charge of the National Security Council, he has no problems uh, carrying out horrific genocidal bombing campaigns. Um, I, I don't really see him, you know, you know, I, I sort of think that, you know, under this sort of extreme neocon leadership, a lot of the, the things that created this crisis in the first place through the Korean War, we're just going to see the same sort of tactics from Washington again. I really hope that's not true. But with so many neocons in the White House, um, it's, it's hard to see, uh, you know, a, an alternative course of action being pursued by the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, John Bolton was a, a serious uh, runner-up for our next segment, uh, The Hall of Shame. Um, maybe he'll get, yeah, he'll get there me one on day. another week. We'll have him on another Yeah, week. I think so. Yeah. Oh, yes. All right, so going to the Hall of Shame, uh, our inductee this week um, is someone who recently announced his run for president. That would be Joe Biden. Biden, of course, was Obama's vice president. He's also a longtime senator or was a longtime senator from Delaware. But there is just so much in Biden's past that a lot of people either don't know or they have forgot or they've forgotten it. Um, So I'll start off with one of those uh, little known points, his friendship uh, with arguably the most racist man in post-World War II American politics, Strom Thurmond. So I'm going to give a, an intro to Strom Thurmond that's from a great article in Current Affairs uh, called Everybody's Chum. I highly recommend you read it. It's written by a personal friend of mine, Nathan Robinson. Uh, I think he sums up Thurmond's legacy uh, really well, so I'll, I'll read from that now. In 1948, South Carolina seg- segregationist Strom Thurmond ran for president on the breakaway Dixiecrat ticket. 
Thurmond was furious that President Truman had proposed anti-lynching legislation, the elimination of poll taxes, and the integration of the armed forces. Thurmond declared that there were, quote, not enough troops in the army to force the southern people to break down segregation and admit the N-word race into our theaters, into our swimming pools, into our homes, into our churches, end quote. The openly racist 1948 Thurman campaign was lastingly infamous. When Republican leader Trent Lott spoke warmly of Thurman's run at Thurman's 100th birthday party in 2002, Lott was forced to resign from the party's leadership. And here Robinson uh, notes in, in parentheses, it takes a lot to become too toxically racist for even the Republican Party to stop. <laughs> Thurmond, however, was unapologetic. He said he had no regrets when asked what he would have done differently during his 70-year career in politics. And he, uh, thinking back on that career, said, quote, I can't think of anything. Jesus, 100 years old. I mean, it's true that only the good die young, I suppose. Actually, talking about swimming pools, Biden claimed that he was a civil rights activist in the 60s and 70s but was actually forced to admit that this was an exaggeration. And the real story was that he was a lifeguard at an all-black swimming pool. And that's according to the New York Times. Oh, well, well, that may explain uh, why Biden was so chummy with someone like Thurmond. Because uh, actually, at, at Thurmond's funeral, it was Joe Biden who gave the eulogy, where he painted yes. Thurmond as a courageous and decent man who challenged his past views, which, of course, as I just mentioned, statements with uh, statements uh, Thurmond made in his last years proved that to be entirely false. So Biden, during the eulogy, uh, he omitted Thurmond's worst offenses, of which uh, there are many. And he basically painted Thurmond as, as a civil rights hero, which is just totally unrealistic and insane. So, so here's a quote um, from Biden's eulogy of Thurmond so you can see what I'm talking about. Quote, This is a man who in 1947, the New York Times ran a lead editorial saying, Strom Thurmond, hope of the South, and talked about how he had set up reading programs, get better books for separate but equal schools. This is a man who was opposed to the poll tax. This is a man who I watched vote for the extension of the Voting Rights Act. This is a man who I watched vote for the Martin Luther King holiday. And it's fairly easy to say today that that was pure political expediency, but I choose to believe otherwise. Wow, Joe. Well, notice Biden's use of separate but equal here. Uh, in this eulogy, and also uh, the omission of Thurman's 1948 racist as hell presidential run being omitted, but he includes the 1947 New York Times article that called Thurman the, quote, hope of the South. I think that tells us a lot about Joe Biden. And also, if that weren't enough, uh, Joe Biden co-sponsored anti-integration legislation with mega-racist and arch-segregationist Jesse Helms, senator from North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, he spent his entire life, that's Biden, attacking civil liberties and human rights. That's both inside and outside the US. I mean, he himself boasts that he was the real author of the Patriot Act, doesn't he? Which gutted civil liberties right. in America. Sorry, Jennifer Neustadt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in Biden's opinion, he thinks that the Patriot Act didn't go far enough. Which, let's remember what the Patriot Act did. It was enabled after September 11, and it allows for the indefinite detention of anyone without trial and gave the government essentially limitless authority to spy on anyone it liked. And it was forced through in response to 9-11. But Biden had written essentially the same act of legislation in 1994 
And this is something he was proud of, and he also championed the militarization of police forces across the U.S. Yeah, well, it also, uh, you know, um, some people have said after Biden announced his run that his own worst enemy is going to be recordings of himself talking on CNN. <laughs> and I think that's really accurate because we've already seen so many things come up. Like someone dug up the other day a quote of him saying that, you know, he had tried to get big money when he first got into politics, but they told him, come back when you're 40, son. And he had, and he said, I was willing to prostitute myself, but they just wouldn't let me. I mean, that tells you, yeah, yeah, I think it was on uh, Jimmy Dore or someone like that. I, I highly recommend looking up that clip. It tells you everything you need to know about someone like Joe Biden, someone who's willing to cozy up to truly despicable people like Strom Thurmond when politically expedient um, and prostitute himself to big business. But, you know, this also, uh, you know, shows he's, he's just a really bad option if the Democratic Party actually wants to beat Trump in 2020. Because let's remember the Democratic, uh, the, the Democrat main, uh, their main attack on Trump. And, and this was even in Biden's opening campaign video attacking Trump. Uh, it was this focus on, on Trump's, you know, friendliness and chumminess with, with racists and racist groups, right? Well, as, as we just talked about, you know, Biden has been just as chummy with vile racists as Trump. So, you know, that makes that whole angle of attack totally useless. And then on top of that, you have Biden being a big force in the in the public humiliation of Anita Hill, who was an African-American woman. You have him uh, being an, an architect of the, the Clinton crime bill that helped lead to the, the current, uh, you know, uh, state of the criminal justice system, uh, criminal justice system in the U.S., which disproportionately uh, imprisons uh, people of color. Right. So, you know, if the Democrats run Biden, I mean, they will be giving people Trump supporters like Candace Owens, you know, an unlimited supply of ammo to go after Trump. And also, you know, as I mentioned, Anita Hill, um, another thing, the other main attack on, on Trump besides him, you know, being chummy with racists um, is that he gropes women. Right. And Biden, sure. obviously, uh is just as gropey, arguably more gropey than than Trump is, because there's oh infinite videos. Oh my god, videos. those videos are horrible, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of them are with kids too. So I mean, come on, you're going to be giving all the pizza gators ammo. You're going to be giving. Uh, just, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it just, it's just. I don't see how Biden can win because Trump will just wipe the floor with him because all the main attacks that have been launched over Trump over these past few years, uh, Biden just he he he's the same on on those levels, right? Uh, it's just yeah. that he's more cozy with the the political elite class than Trump is, right? I mean, to me, that's really the only real difference. And sure, he has the Obama Obama credit, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if you watched his uh, Brookings Institute uh, fundraiser where people paid twenty eight hundred dollars a ticket, but his no, main I message didn't. Was, that's quote, that sounds it, gross. <laughs> His his message was, quote, I'm not Bernie Sanders, and he assured his wealthy donors that, uh, quote, 500 billionaires are not the reason we're in trouble. And he also said, saying, I should have had a Republican kid, and he kept complaining that his kids were not rich enough and right-wing enough, which is a pretty astonishing thing for a Democrat to do. I mean, he's got a terrible record on traditional liberal issues. You know, he's opposed immigration, he supported a bill that uh, barred people with HIV AIDS from entering the US, and he supported legislation that made uh, deportation much easier. And he also suggested using the troops on undocumented workers as well. He's a big supporter of the military-industrial complex, and uh, he also said he, uh, he clearly voted for the Iraq war, but he also said, I'd vote for it again. 
He remains one of the more hawkish Democrats. He supported the bombing of Yugoslavia and the Afghan war as well. And one last thing is, of course, he's from the state of Delaware, which is home to many sort of financial and tech companies. And since 2005, he's been at the forefront of ensuring no American can escape massive student loans through bankruptcy. And he's also supported laws that ensure we are constantly being spied upon, not only by the government, but also by big tech like Amazon and Google. Well, I, w- I want to go back to what you mentioned, um, that quote of Biden about him talking about his kids. Um, so he complained about his kids not being rich enough. Let's remember, uh, let's go back a, a few years. Joe Biden uh, got his son, Hunter Biden, uh, a-, a pretty good deal over there at this big Ukrainian uh, fracking company, right? Uh, he joined the board of directors of uh, Burisma, a private oil and gas company in, in Ukraine. Um, and then eventually got, you know, wrapped up in this huge, um, you know, corruption scandal in Ukraine. Allegedly, uh, Biden stepped in while he was vice president to stop uh, any sort of corruption investigation into that company by threatening to withhold aid to Ukraine's government, which is uh, pretty scandalous. Um, so, you know, uh, Biden complaining about having a Republican kid or helping, you know, having his kid not be rich enough because of his political, you know, wiles and whatnot. Well, that's not very, uh, I wouldn't call that very accurate considering, um, you know, this now forgotten scandal about, um, corruption scandal where he was trying to enrich his son after, you know, U.S. led uh, regime change in Ukraine. Yeah, well, Biden seems to almost be like famously um, poor. He he keeps talking about how he's not got millions of dollars in the bank. And I just think if you're like a senator and then vice president, it's like, what the hell are you doing it for? I, I almost respect the people who are corrupt to the core and have got millions of dollars more. Like He seems to be like a true believer in the system. It's crazy. Well, I don't really buy his whole thing about, like, I, I don't have any money sort of deal. So uh, his first fundraiser that he's done since announcing president, it was at the home of the the executive of Comcast. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't remember how much it was charged per person. Um, $2,800, was it not? Uh, oh, is this the same one that you were talking about with the Brookings Institute? I don't think this one was associated oh, sorry, with the Brookings the Institute. Institute. This was, this was yeah. a different one. Um, okay. That was after he announced his presidential run not that long ago. So he went to this guy's house. I think his name is uh, Daniel Cohen. I can't remember the, the executive's name. But anyway, it was at his house, and it was this convenient workaround for Biden who, t- who claimed that he wasn't going to take any money from corporate PACs. He was going to run his presidential campaign as a man of the people. But, you know... It's a nice uh, loophole to have a big fundraiser held at the uh, head, the personal home of the head of one of the biggest telecom corporations in the United States that also has one of the most powerful lobbying uh, machines in all of Washington. So pretty silly that you're saying you're not going to take corporate lobbyist money or corporate PAC money, uh, but you're going to cozy up to the most powerful <laughs> uh, people right from the get-go at their personal homes and take their money directly. Say Say it ain't so, Joe. I think he <laughs> certainly deserves a spot right in the middle of our wall of shame. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If only we could put him there twice. Alright, that's about all we've got time for on this week's edition of the Mintcast from Mint Press News. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, do share it on social media or become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash mintpressnews. For myself, Whitney Webb, and the entire Mint Press News team, and still, until next week, stay fresh. <laughs>